This morning, uh, we will be in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 18. Uh, We're going to begin in verse 28 and uh, go through uh, verse 40. Uh, So if you would turn in your Bibles there with me, uh, we're continuing our journey through this hero story about Jesus. This is a story of, of the hero, Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll consider this passage this morning. And first, we will pray. Then we will read the entirety of the text in which we are going to examine this morning. And finally, we'll divide the text, uh, making some observations and applications as we go. Would you join me in prayer, please? Oh, Father in heaven, we come as your people this morning in need of grace. We need the grace of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the passage to our minds for understanding, to inflame our hearts to faith, to engage our will to obedience, Lord. We pray for the church that gathers in the name of Jesus at Old Town this morning. May the gospel of Jesus Christ be presented without reservation, without, with, with clarity and without obstruction. May the gospel go out among us as well this morning. May you use me as your instrument this morning, Father, removing any hint of myself, Lord, that we might hear clearly your word. We pray for those this morning who are hindered from fellowship, those who by your divine will uh, are prohibited from being here, some uh, due to illness this morning. I'd like to lift up Hannah to you, Lord, as she has COVID and she's uh, slowly recovering, but still under the weather. I pray for the Martinez's, Jesse and Michelle, who have uh, been knocked down with a cold this week. I pray for recovery for them, for your comfort for them. Lord, we pray for Ben and Mary Grimm this morning. We ask that you give them favor as they serve your gospel, as they serve your gospel to your people in New Guinea this morning. We ask your grace upon us this morning. In the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So if you would uh, stand with me, if you are able, uh, for the reading of God's word this morning from John chapter 18, and we will begin in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would have not delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nations, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. 
Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find it no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is God's word. You can be seated. I have entitled this morning's uh, sermon, The Truth Problem. And if we think about this, truth has been problematic ever since the serpent hissed at our first parents, Adam and Eve, and hissed at them and said, did God actually say you may not eat of the tree in the garden? The truth problem exists because sin-tainted man or woman has excluded it from their heart, denied it ex its existence, and exchanged the truth for a lie. And we are faced this moment as a moment of truth. Jesus is in his hour of trial and humiliation and his mockings. And as he is in that, it, it caused me to think about coming face to face with our reality of this is a moment for truth. This is a moment of truth for us. And in our hour, if we look around, watch TV at all, browse the internet, look at social media, whatever it might be where you hear things coming at you and see things coming at you, you might understand that truth is absent. It's absent from the heart of our neighbors. It's absent from the heart of our classmates. It's absent from our coworkers. It's absent from our governing leaders. It is even lacking in the heart of some who attend worship services week after week after week. It is even absent from the, from the heart of those who lead in song and in sacrament and in preaching in some cases. The truth is absent from the heart. And the big question of this text and the big question I want to ask of you and to think about this is what is truth? That's how Pilate answers Jesus. What is truth? And as we consider our passage this morning, truth is on trial. But the Jews are not concerned with truth. Truth. They're not concerned with justice. Their concern is that the intent of their heart would be carried out in such a way as that they would remain blameless. That they would re remain blameless. Pilate, he himself is not really concerned with the truth either because he is concerned with opinions and with just crass pragmatism. What works? He didn't concern with truth, but what works for him? What serves his personal purpose? Truth is not part of the equation. So when he answers Jesus back and he says, what is truth? He's like, the idea there is that what does truth have to do with anything? 
What does truth have to do with what we're doing here? I'm not after the truth. I'm after what is practical and pragmatic for me. What, how is it going to work out best in my estimation? Well, his concern is also keeping the Jews uh, under control so that his Roman superiors would keep him in power and see him as capable and worthy of his position. You see, his pride and his position, that, that is his motivation. It is not justice or seeking out the truth. And when we look at this passage this morning, you'll see or think that maybe Pilate acts somewhat favorably compared to the Jews towards Jesus. But we'll see that it might not be all that it's cracked up to be. And as we think about truth on trial there, you know, truth is on trial today in our society, isn't it? The question that gets asked often or that gets answered back to us when we proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, proclaim the gospel, proclaim an absolute truth, that truth is outside of us, that it belongs to God, right? When we claim that in the world and the world hollers back at us, what is truth? Well, when we look at it in the Bible, that looks like that three-word sentence might find a question mark for punctuation at the end. But when the world says that back to us, what is truth? It is those three words, what is truth, are punctuated from the heart and mind of Pilate, from our society, from the Jews, with not a question mark, but an exclamation point. What is truth? Basically, no such thing. There is no such thing. That's their answer. The mantra uh, of today is that truth is not the currency that buys and sells in the world, is it? Truth is not the currency. Pragmatism is a good currency. What's practical, what works, is the currency that buys and sells in today's marketplace of ideas. Today, their mantra comes out like this. There's only one absolute in the world, and that is that there's no absolutes. They don't understand the, the moronic sounding uh, of that sentence, right? There's no absolutes, which in itself is an absolute. Right. But anyway, that is, that is what uh, goes out there today. They're, they're, they're saying things like this. You have your truth and I have my truth, which is tantamount to saying what is truth. If you have your truth and I have my truth, then there is no truth because what is truth? What is truth? There's nothing, nothing outside of your opinions, nothing outside of pragmatism, nothing outside of how you feel, right? I noticed this trend that started when my daughters were, were in middle school, that it, it used to be that, you know, people said things like this to one another when we talked and we had opinions and we were sharing ideas. We said, well, I think that all of a sudden changed not long ago to I feel. I feel like it should be this. I feel like this is the answer. That's a disregard for truth and absolutes, right? There's no thinking involved. I just feel that it's like this, so therefore it is. I feel one way about something, and so therefore that becomes my 
truth, something I'm hanging on to, but there's no truth in it whatsoever. Nothing observable, nothing you can dissect and find out whether or not it's true. It's just how you feel, right? Well, there's no truth outside of those opinions, those feelings, those pragmatisms. The only thing left for a person who denies the existence of absolute truth is to embrace a lie, though. It's the only thing left. If you deny that there is any absolute truth, then what's left? If there's no absolutes, there's no absolute truth, the only thing left for that person is a lie. That's all that's left. There's no truth. Everything else, everything you embrace, everything you think, everything you feel, every, everything that motivates you moving forward is based on a lie. Because you've decided that there is no truth and that truth doesn't exist. One philosopher wrote that we are raising a generation of moral stutterers. Another says that there's a hole in our moral ozone. Stephen Lawson writes this, the hole in the moral ozone has produced an imploding world in which abortion, homosexuality, euthanasia, pornography, transgender identity, and all manner of lewd behavior are not only practiced but celebrated. You see, when these things are celebrated, it is because there's an absence of truth, a rejection of truth, an absence of truth from the heart and a rejection of truth that it even exists at all. When absolute truth departs, he further says, everything is up for grabs. Tragically, modern humanity has their feet firmly planted in the air. End quote. The spirit of the chief priests, the spirit of the religious leaders of Jesus' hour is alive today in this hour. The denial of truth that is espoused by Pilate is the current spirit of our time. In this great hour, the moment of truth is upon us. And this moment of truth is calling you who, uh, from God, who are, who are moms and who are dads and asking you, will you not compromise the teaching of the truth to your children? Those who spend countless hours being indoctrinated by the world's pragmatism, relativism, and feelings. God is calling you and I as a church to stand for truth as we raise our kids. God is looking for church members who will stand on the authority of Scripture and will insist that the claims of the, that the world makes, the claims, the things that their pastor speaks, the things that their worship leaders sing, measure up to truth as God has revealed it in the Scripture. God is looking for a church that will do that. He's looking for church members who will stand for that truth. So I asked this morning that we would be men and women who know the truth, who speak the truth, who are submitted to the truth, no matter how impractical it could become and no matter how much it may cost. Will we be willing? I think of my son and I had to tell him this. I am willing to get in the way of your fun for the sake of truth. For the sake of, of being forthright with you, I am willing to get in the way of your fun. I am willing for you not to like what I have to say. Because that's what love does, right? Love tells the truth. Love is honest. Love is honest with the truth. Let us first take a look at truth when it is excluded from the human heart.
verse 28 through 32. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would, have, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So here's what's going on in our story. After an illegal pre-trial meeting with the high priest in the middle of the night, early the next morning, between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus is led to the governor Pontius Pilate's headquarters. And so these Jewish leaders are defiled from the heart, have murderous intent in their heart, concerned only with the ceremonial appearance of being undefiled, they themselves say, no, we will not enter the headquarters, but we will remain outside. And as our scene opens, Jesus is with Pilate on the inside. His accusers are outside. And Pilate is going from the presence of Jesus into the presence of his accusers and back to Jesus to examine him. See, the Jews believed that it was a common practice among Gentiles to flush stillborn or aborted fetuses down the drains in their homes. So they would not enter a Gentile home or a Gentile uh, business close to the Passover uh, due to the possibility that they would be in proximity to a dead body. So if there was some other offense that they were talking about here, right, if, if they had some way had been unclean in another way, other than a dead body, they could have cleansed themselves from their defilement and still been able to uh, keep the Passover, right? So they had some idea that they could come in contact with the dead body and therefore they could not enter in. And see, so Numbers 19, 11 through 14 describes the process for cleansing if one came in contact with a dead body, and this is what is in their mind. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not thrown on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law. When someone dies in a tent, so this is the idea of them having this practice, everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall stay unclean for seven days. So they want to be ceremonially clean. But what we're going to see as we unfold this passage, as clean as they want to be ceremonially and externally, what is on their heart is filthy murder. It's a murderous intent. Let's look at verse 29. So Pilate went outside and said to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? In a trial proceeding, you would expect that the judge would ask the prosecutors what the charge is, right? You would expect that the prosecutor says, okay, so why are you bringing this, this man before me? What is uh, the charge? They would then, the prosecutor would then lay out their case before the judge. They would provide facts 
um, that they are going to present. They would provide who the cooperating witnesses would be, and they would do this all in the presence of the accused, right? But the Jews here are not all, at all concerned with truth, not concerned with justice, but the intent of their heart is that they would, they would get that which is in their heart carried out, and that then they could have some uh, deniable plausibility, right? I could, I could plausibly deny this because I've shifted the blame to Rome. And bring him to you. I'm going to shift the blame to Rome. If, I, if we're wrong, if this is murderous, if this is ill, we don't take the blame. We took you before Pilate and he killed you. Right? So this is kind of the intent of the heart. They're not concerned with truth, but they want their desires to be carried out and they want them to be carried out through Pilate. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So it's kind of an ambiguous charge, isn't it? The Jews answer to Pilate is simply this, he is an evildoer. If he wasn't an evildoer, we would not have brought him to you. But here's our desire. We desire you to enact the stiffest penalty that you have at your disposal. Pilate says, if he's done evil according to your law, then your law should judge him. Why would you bring him to me? So in John's gospel, it's kind of an ambiguous charge, right? He is an evildoer. In Luke's account, the Jews accuse Jesus of being an insurrectionist. Uh, in Luke 23, it says this, and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Of course, we know for sure that this accusation is a lie. To say that Jesus said, don't make tribute to Caesar to avoid giving unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar we know this is a lie. In Mark 12, verses 14 through 17, and they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. This is the Pharisees talking to Jesus. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. I hear sarcasm in this passage. Okay. It is, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought him one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God. By either account, what is revealed is that the truth is not in, in them and they have a serious heart problem. Truth is absent. The heart of the human problem is a problem of the human heart. I've said this a ton of times, and I'm going to say it again, that the heart of the human problem is a problem of the human heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus addresses the heart issue among the Pharisees, and he, he addresses the heart as it comes through their eyes. In John chapter 9, verse 40 and 41, he says, Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. The heart of the human problem is a problem of the human heart. 
The eyes of the heart must be opened by a divine act of mercy and grace. Because just as Jeremiah wrote, the heart is deceitful above all things. It is sick. It is tainted with the disease of sin. The eyes of the heart of the Jews are blinded from the truth concerning Jesus Christ, who is the son of the living God. The messianic promise given to the people Israel. The truth is excluded from their hearts. Luke chapter 11, Jesus addresses those who have a concern for the appearance of godliness, but are void of the truth. In chapter 11, verse 37 through 41, he says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did he who make the outside make the inside also? Give as alms those things that are within, and behold, then everything is clean for you. See from the heart clearly, right? Vision must be from the heart, and it must be a transformed heart, one in which God takes the heart of stone and turns it to a heart of flesh that we might see. And then in the next part of this passage, we are going to see the desires of the absent heart and the truth that it reveals. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. The Jews have no desire for truth. The truth is not in them. What is revealed is a heart without truth reveals their desire for wickedness. Their hearts are envious of Jesus. And what comes out is the ultimate desire of the heart, the reason for the arrest, the reason for the illegal trial, the reason for the lack of evidence and fairness is that they desire this simply to murder Jesus. Murder is on their hearts. The sick human heart, without the revelation of the truth of Jesus Christ, is bent on destruction and rejection of anyone or anything that resembles a notion of absolute truth that is outside of themselves. The human heart, without the revelation of Jesus Christ, is bent on the rejection of truth. And of course, the exaltation of self, right? The human heart, absent of Jesus, is bent on its self-exaltation, self-righteousness, absent of truth, and all manner of things become possible when the truth is absent from your heart. So basically, they're saying this to them, to Pilate, we want Jesus of Nazareth dead, and you have the authority to do it. And we have also noticed a willingness on your part in the past to do such things. You have the most torturous mechanism possible in crucifixion. We know you have that, and we know that you have been known to practice this. This is why we bring this man to you. Well, let's look at verses 33 through 38, and now see uh, Pilate, and try to see him in the right light. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus to him, and he said, "'Are you the king of the Jews?' Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? 
Pilate answered him, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? So as we as we go into our into our story and we get we get further along in the trial and we get further along in the execution of Jesus, we see time and time again it looks as though Pilate has some noble character. Because Pilate is saying, you know, not him. I find no fault in him. I find no guilt in him. Not him. Could I give you this one instead? Right? But when we look back at secular sources, we can see that that sort of activity is really outside the norm of what Pilate's character was like. Secular sources reveal that Pilate, the governor, he was not at all of any noble character. His position was granted to him because he married the granddaughter of the emperor Augustus and Pilate's mother-in-law, Augustus' wife. Now he knows this ahead of time. He knows the reputation of his soon-to-be mother-in-law, that she was a very coarse and depraved woman in that day, and her reputation preceded her. So a man of noble character would, would not really want to be part of that family, but yet, because he could be exalted to position of influence within the Roman government, he marries her granddaughter. Nonetheless, Pilate's wife, Claudia, she had the right connections and she uh, was connected with the highest levels of Roman government. Earlier rules, rulers in that day, prior to Pilate, had exercised care in showing respect for the Jewish religious convictions, right? So, you know, they wouldn't defile temples. They wouldn't bring uh, banners uh, of, of national uh, flags and, and post them in the temple areas. They wouldn't do that because, you know, they were respectful, at least, to keep the peace with the Jewish people, to keep them under control. They, they, they granted them a, a little bit of nobility here. But when Pilate, he first arrived in Judea, he raised banners with the likeness of Tiberius on them. And a great number of Jews, they flocked uh, to where Pilate was staying and they demanded him to remove them. And then there was this stalemate that lasted for a long time and he would not relent and he would not take them down. And then at the end, he, he said to them, he said, if you don't leave here and disperse quickly, I am going to have these men chop your heads off. But the Jews, standing fast for God and for their temple, got on their knees, showed them their necks, and he relented. He, he did not. He decided not to. This incident, and others like it, he, he went in and, and stole money from the treasury, uh, money that was dedicated to the service of God, and he he had people come and disguise themselves and they, they stole this money to build an aqueduct. And then Jewish protesters who came, again, he had men disguise himself as them and they came and then they beat them with, uh, with sticks. And Pilate, see, he doesn't have the strength of character to rule well. And secular sources, they describe him as stubborn, proud, reckless, corrupt, violent, and cruel. 
And yet we see him in this moment seemingly having some compassion, some understanding for who Jesus is. Of course, he probably knew and heard of Jesus' teaching, probably knew what kind of he was about, right? But it's not that he had a soft heart towards him. And the Jews were hoping that by moving quickly and counting on the reckless character of Pilate, that he would render a speedy judgment to punish Jesus by death, right? They're hoping that this comes about fast. And just like every other court proceeding, usually the attorneys are having conversations the night before or weeks before, right? And they know exactly kind of what's going to go on when they go into that setting. So for them to have an audience with Pilate between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning, that had to be prearranged, right? So they prearranged this meeting and they kind of get the feeling that Pilate is going to side with them and do as they ask. But now it seems that after they would have struck a deal, that he is turning and relenting on the deal that they struck together. What could have changed his mind between the arrangement that they had the night before and the actual meeting? Some speculate, and this is just a speculation, that it's possible that Pilate's wife and what she saw the night before may have persuaded him. In Matthew 27, 19, she says to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate's question of Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus is like, are you saying that I am a king? Or is that just what you've heard? I'm not a Jew, and it's your own people who have turned you over to judgment. What have you done that they would desire for you to be here? I am a king. Jesus says, but a kingdom that cannot be thwarted, cannot be judged or otherwise dismissed by any worldly kingdom or any people, because my people then would have prevented this moment. We're going to see in chapter 19 that when Pilate learns that Jesus claimed to be the son of God and he refuses to answer Pilate's questions, Jesus further emphasizes that his kingdom is superior to Pilate. Pilate says, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. On a side note, I was thinking about this idea of a kingdom truth that we ought to embrace. That Christ has the overriding kingdom of all the kingdoms of the earth, and he is currently in heaven, ruling and reigning, and he is far above every kingdom that we can envision here on earth. As my brother Josh Morgan and I were walking the other day, we were talking about the reality that the church of Jesus Christ ought to confidently walk in, that our Savior Jesus Christ having conquered sin and death, is ruling and reigning in heaven. That although the circumstances of this life seem contrary and seem like the world's kingdoms are winning, that the sun is shining on them, right? Everything is bright and good and they are warmed by the sun as we are warmed by the sun. They are refreshed by the rain as we are refreshed by the rain. But his, his superior kingdom is not diminished by the seeming success of ungodly kingdoms in the here and now. One day, the sun that warms the face of those who are contrary to God's kingdom will indeed scorch them to wither them away. Psalm 37, 1 and 2 says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. 
Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. As we come back to the last part of this text again. So are you a king? You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? While the Jews had been hardened to the truth from the heart and the truth was excluded from their desire, Pilate, when presented with the thought of absolute truth, denies the existence of truth. What is truth? What claim does anyone have to a universal truth? Truth is relative and not really the aim of this trial, Jesus. As we said before, when the existence of truth is denied, all that is left is a lie. This is the state of fallen men and women. Now, from the garden scene forward, we have this denial of truth. Did God actually say you may not eat of any tree in the garden? The snake hissed. And the spirit of that is alive and well today. Romans 1, 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Passed down from our first parents is a suppression of the existence of truth. Passed down from our first parents when, when, when the serpent whispered, did God actually say you may not eat of any tree in the garden? They deny the existence of truth, suppress truth. Just like Peter, we just saw last week, denied his association with Jesus. Humankind denies an association with absolute truth. When absolutes are presented, the sin-sick human heart pushes that truth down suppresses it, denies that it even exists. The truth having been revealed by God in creation, though, leaves all without excuse. A denial of the existence of truth then leaves us only with what? If there is no absolute truth, all we're left with is a lie. All we're left with is a lie. If there is no absolute, if that is our absolute, all we're left with is a lie. And we see in the last part of this passage that Pilate proposes an exchange. He says, he went back to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release you the king of Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate proposes an exchange the Son of God, the King of the universe, the man sent from God, full of grace and truth, the one in whom Pilate can find no guile or guilt in exchange for a murderer, thief, and an insurrectionist. Do you want me to release the innocent one, the one without guilt, or do you want me to release a liar and a thief and a murderer? Which one do you want? I propose an exchange. Logic says to us, in our humanity, right? If we're presented with these two options, do we want a man full of truth in whom I can find no guilt? 
I can set him free if I choose a murderous, guilty, thieving liar. If I set him free, the man of truth dies. He proposes that they would exchange a liar. Well, they flip the exchange around, don't they? The Jews cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas in the Greek means son of the father. This is taken from the Hebrew, and it kind of means like this. Son of what type of father, though? Not son of Abba, father of the father. It is a son uh, who is full of false pride. It is the son of the father of lies. The Jews say, we desire you to release the son of the father of lies in exchange for the son of God full of grace and truth. Which will you choose? And they say, give us a liar. Destroy, suppress, and deny the truth. Give us a liar. Again, as we've said all along here, when the truth is denied and suppressed, all that's left is a lie. The spirit of Jews, the spirit of the Jews in that day, and the spirit of Pilate, they're alive and well today, aren't they? Romans 1.25 tells us this. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. You see, the truth serves the creator. The lie serves the creature. And that's kind of what's going on in this passage, right? We want to serve our human desire. The desire for truth that serves the creator, but we want to serve ourselves. How many times can you think of in your life that you may have suppressed the truth for a lie? We do it in subtle ways. I was thinking as I was doing my long walk this morning, I wonder how many lies a day I hear. And then I thought, how many lies a day do I accept? How many, how many lies a day do I accept? Then I thought, how many lies a day do I speak? How many lies every day are all around me? How much falsehood is everywhere? And when the truth is presented to me and it makes me uncomfortable, do I push it down? Try to put it under my foot so then it kind of doesn't exist? If I deny the truth, it doesn't exist, right? If I push it down, it's not there. If I don't face the reality, I can shove it down. How many lies are we inundated with today? Some of us, one of the big struggles in the church is, is, is always and has been and probably will be is the struggle with pornography because it's everywhere, right? It's even subtly in, in regular mainstream television stuff, stuff that would have been forbidden when your great great or when your grandparents, maybe even when your own mom and dad were alive, that stuff would not have been on television, right? It would have been considered pornographic. Yet it's there exposed in front of us. And and do we kind of like take the truth of 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 sexual purity and exchange it for that lie and say, because our young girls are like, that's what I'm supposed to look like. That's what I'm supposed to act like. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? That's an exchange of the truth for a lie. It is 
to exchange the truth of God for a lie and serve the creature and not the creator. But that is bad news, but there's really, really great news in Jesus Christ. I want you to get this. Because although the Jews have exchanged the God of truth for the father of lies, although Pilate has denied the existence of truth, although you may be sitting here and you may have denied the existence of truth, or you may not have truth received in your heart yet, and although that spirit is alive and well today, although the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against unrighteousness and against those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, the judgment against Jesus is in exchange for the judgment you deserve. They exchanged a robber for Jesus. Jesus exchanged his life for sinners and liars like you and me. You see, God, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be in exchange for liars and deniers of the truth. God made him to be in exchange. He would take on the guilt and the shame of your sin and your righteousness. He, Jesus, would give his life as a ransom for yours that you might become the righteousness of God through faith in him. That's the greatest exchange that has ever happened. What a great exchange. When you see two exchanges, right? You see the sinfulness of the exchange that goes on here. Barabbas or Jesus. We want Barabbas. We want a lie. And Jesus willingly goes to death and says, I exchange me for you. I exchange me for you. I exchange me for the very ones who deny my existence. For the ones who right now have denied my existence, suppressed the truth, who have pushed it down and said it's not there, I, the truth, am exchanging my life for you that you might see and you might live, and that you might live according to that truth. Man, what a great exchange. It far trumps the exchange, doesn't it? It far trumps their exchange. It far trumps the exchange of Adam and Eve in the garden when they believed the lie and exchanged it, right? Exchanged the truth of God in their presence. They exchanged the presence of God daily, like a felt, known, intimate relationship with God on a daily basis. And they said, I'm gonna exchange this for the lie that the serpent is handing me. But he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him through his death on a cross. What a fabulous exchange that trumps all of them. So I ask us this morning, and what a question we should ask, I think. What if we ask this? Who should pay for your sin? Who? Who should pay? And now here we are on this exchange. Will it be Jesse who pays for his sin or Jesus? Will it be his life he gives or will it be Jesus? Will it be Jeff's life for his sin or will it be Jesus? And our Lord Jesus says, not him. 
but me. Like they cry out, not this innocent man. We want Barabbas. Jesus says, not these guilty sinners, but me. Man, what a great exchange. And will you receive that gift? Who should pay for your sin? Jesus says, not you, him.